0: So, we are starting a new series. It's going to be a shorter series. We went for, like, almost a year on the last ones. (laughs) We're just going to do, like, a three-week little series. And it's all based around the final week of Jesus' life. So, the name of the series is called Godly Requests. So, that's going to be the focus. Not only is it focused on that final week of Jesus' life, but, like, different questions and requests that are made within that week. And so we're going to kind of unpack some of those. So now we're going to look at nine questions within three days of this final week in Jesus' life. So we can go to Mark chapter 11. Also, if I could get a couple of volunteers who don't mind reading. I can read. Y'all. Cool? Where are we starting? Mark chapter 11. Within all of the Gospels, which is the first four books of the New Testament, It's all sort of different accounts of Jesus's ministry. And they pretty much all of them recount the three years that were Jesus's ministry. And they all seem to like slow down, zoom in and really focus on like moment by moment, day by day, what happened during that final week. So the the big portion of most of the Gospels is that last week in Jesus's life because so much important stuff happened. And so we're going to see that tonight. We're in Mark because we only have a couple weeks now until Easter. This upcoming Easter is called Palm Sunday, and the Sunday after that is going to be Easter. So we have this Wednesday, next Wednesday, and then it's Easter, and then we're going to have one more in this series after Easter. So we are going to jump in here. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Mark tends to go a little quicker. That's why we're going to Mark instead of say. Uh, you know, one of the other gospels because they really—it's like chapters and chapters. So Mark kind of moves a little quicker, and so we're gonna we're gonna do that. But uh, verse one says, "Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, so they are going to Jerusalem because it is the time of Passover, which is a." festival, a feast that they had been celebrating for hundreds of years, looking back at basically God rescuing the Israelites out of Egypt. They were in captivity and through a lot of crazy, awesome signs, wonders, miracles, God rescues the Israelites from captivity and sets them free. And the the final miracle that was done was also a curse on the land of Egypt. And it, the word went out like, okay, if you don't, you know, bring a lamb into your house, live with it for." a time, and then kill it for food, paint your doorposts with blood, and then have this feast, then the firstborn of your family will die. And the, the the angel of death is going to come into Egypt, and if you don't do this, then you will not be covered, and, and the angel of death will enter your house. And so... Uh, God did this because the the Egyptians were not letting the Israelites go. So he sends the angel of death to show, hey, I have power over life and death, and my people will not be touched by this curse. And so the Israelites who obeyed showed God's power, and the Egyptians, it broke them, so they let the Israelites go. So this feast is celebrating that. And this is significant because... Uh, the Bible says that Jesus is our Passover lamb, right? He's the one that took our place because throughout the Old Testament, there's like sin means death. That is just justice. If you sin against God, then you should die. That's what we deserve. But what happens when Jesus comes is he steps into our place. He becomes the sacrifice of instead of us having to die, just like the lamb in the Old Testament covering the the. Payment that is due for debt for sin. The, the lamb would basically like transfer our sin to the lamb. It's like all symbolic, pointing to what Jesus was going to do. And that's what Jesus did, fulfilling all of this stuff. And he, being a perfect man, died for us so that we could have a right relationship with God. So that's all symbolic. That's what's happening. That's historically where we're at. That's what is going on, they're going to the Passover because the the law at the time was three times a year, the men of the Israelites should go to Jerusalem. One of the feasts that they were celebrating was this one. So if you were an able-bodied man, you would go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Most of the time that man would bring his family. It is just a massive influx of people. The city becomes jammed. There's lots of celebrating, there's lots of feasting, there's lots of family get-togethers, there's lots of prayer and, and worshiping of God. So everybody is flocking there. There's a huge crowd going there, and that's why Jesus is going there as well. And it says, When they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples And he said to them, go into the village opposite you. As soon as you've entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So this is a very specific prophecy of Jesus. Like, here's how it's going to go down. (laughs) It's a very specific thing. This is how it's going to happen. And it's also to fulfill a very specific prophecy that was made some five hundred years before, and that's in Zechariah 9. So if you could read that now, Jasmine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. So we had a very specific prophecy that the Saviour, the king that they, they had been told, God told them, hundreds of years beforehand there's gonna be a king, there's gonna be a savior that comes, and he sets up the kingdom of God. Okay, and so this prophecy was, the king is coming, the Messiah is coming, and he's, he's going to be riding on a donkey. So Jesus says, go grab this donkey, and it's for this reason. So verse 4. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded So they let them go. Again, we see Jesus' word being fulfilled. He knows the future. He is fully man, but he's also fully God. It's like this really complex thing that that is happening. And he says this thing's going to happen, and it is fulfilled. And like I said, tonight we're going to be looking at nine questions that happen within these first three days of this final week of Jesus' life. And here we come to the first question, right? What are you doing losing that cult? okay. So we we know, this doesn't say that it was the owner, but the, one of the other accounts says it was actually the owner of the cult saying, hey, like, why are you taking my donkey? <laughs> like, what are you doing? And then they respond, and he's like, oh, okay, great. Um, but we don't really know anything else about the owner of this donkey. For some reason, their response, the Lord has need of it, is enough. And he's just like, oh, okay, great. Like, take it, please. Take it off my hands, but What I want to say about this is that God obviously has been working on the owner's heart, whether he gave him a dream or like angel came to him. We don't know what happened, but maybe maybe it was just a conviction that he needs to be a more giving person. And so when this thing happens, like, oh, I really do need to be more giving. God needs it. You can have it. We don't know what exactly is going on behind the scenes, but what I will say is that God is definitely working on this guy's heart because all that needed to be said was the Lord needs it. And he was more than willing to say, okay. He was he was willing to just do the sort of weird thing. And I was thinking about it. And when Annie and I, we lived in Ohio for some time and we felt at one point called by God back here to Long Beach. This is where I am from. And we never thought that we would live here. And there was a point that we came back and visited and we were like, are we supposed to like move out here? It's kind of a big deal. So we thought about it a lot. We prayed about it a lot. And we we weren't sure because we realized, man, that would be really hard, quitting our job. It's going to a really expensive place. It's super expensive to move, but also like to live there. And really, we don't know what it has. So it this is a really big decision. So we prayed, we fasted. And eventually God spoke to us very clearly like, yes, I want you in Longreach. So it was a tough decision, but when we had made it, we told our friends and family, and many of them were Christians, and some of them responded in sort of a weird way, like questioning, like, what are you doing, like, Mm -hmm. leaving Ohio? What are you doing, right? What are you doing loosing this cult? What are you, They're like, questioning, like, why are you doing this? And we would say, like, well, God has has called us out there. This is part of our calling, and we're going to fulfill it. It's not going to be most comfortable thing but sometimes that's how God's calling is and one person specifically responded well just because it's not comfortable doesn't mean it's God's calling and I was like right but it is God's calling and it is going to be less comfortable (laughs) So we we know that that doesn't mean we're not going to do it and so the the reason I'm bringing this up is because it is of course okay to ask a Christian when they say they're going to do this weird thing like what Like, well, why are you doing that, right? Why are you losing this cult? Why are you moving to Ohio? It's okay to ask that question, obviously. But our encouragement needs to be, as it says in Thessalonians, test all things. We've talked about that a lot here, right? Test all things. Okay, you you think that God is telling you to do this thing. Have you tested it? Because if if God has spoken, he's not so changeable to then change his mind or say the, the total opposite thing. You know, you hear this a lot. People, oh, I was called to this place. Oh, now God's calling you over here. It's like, well, you didn't accomplish anything in the first place. Were you really called there, or are you called to this other place now? And it's, are you lying? You know, and so we need to be careful how we phrase what God says. We need to be sure in those moments. But it's also okay to ask a Christian, like, hey, so what are you doing and why are you doing this? Have you tested it? Because if it is the word of the Lord, it will stand up to test it. It will stand up to scrutiny. For instance, when Annie and I were going to move back here to Long Beach, God spoke to me first. And so when I was like, Hey, like this is what God said to me. And she was like, really? Cause he didn't say that to me. And I don't think I want to go. And so I was like, okay, no, no big deal. And so I was like, I, and I decided and I was praying and I was like, I'm not going to bring it up again. God, if this is, if, if you really want us to go, I know that you'll speak to her individually and then together. And that happened. About a week later, he did speak individually to Annie. I didn't say anything else after that. And then we got more confirmation after that. So if it's the word of the Lord, there will be confirmation. That's why I know that this owner of the cult, it was confirmation when they were like, the Lord needs it. Oh, I already knew this was going to happen okay. Right? So it, while it's okay to ask... A Christian, hey, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? If they say it's the word of the Lord, it's tested, and that's what I'm doing, we need to be like, okay. You know, and that's the same thing for our life. Sometimes it's tough because it's really good friends or family members, they're like, What are you doing? Why are you doing this? This is dumb. Don't do this. And it's like, ah, I love you, I appreciate you, but God's telling me to do this, so that's more important. And so I'm gonna move in that direction. Let's continue with our story in verse seven. It says, Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their clothes on the road. So as he's entering into Jerusalem, people are spreading their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches. This is where we get the name of Palm Sunday, because it was very likely palm branches that they were pulling down and laying on the road. They, They pull down these leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So they're rolling out the... This is their version of rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. They're, like, making a big deal. I think it's in John. It illuminates this a little bit more. This is right after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And a lot of people heard about that. And so, I think, it again, I think it's John's gospel that tells us that the word had spread and that's why people are so excited. That was like, man, raising someone from the dead, that fulfills even more prophecy. Like, this guy is the Christ. He is the king. He is the the, the promised Messiah. And so everybody's jazzed. They're rolling out the, the red carpet or, you know, the, the leafy branches, their clothes. They're uh, making way for Jesus, verse 9. Then those who went before and those who followed... Cried out saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So, Annie, if you could read Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. This is a fulfillment of that. This is where they get their triumphal cry here save us we pray O Lord O Lord we pray give us success blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord we bless you from the house of the Lord. the word save us in the Hebrew is Hosanna that is what they that is what they're singing that's what they're praising Jesus with Hosanna Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the triumphal, it's been called the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Jesus has, of course, been to Jerusalem many times. But this time is going to be different because he is going to fulfill so much scripture in this coming week. And he's going to fulfill also the calling on his life. He's going to go into Jerusalem and he's going to become our sacrifice, and he's going to fulfill so much scripture. So it's it's very different. This is the triumphal entry, because this is what all of history has been, like, leaning in towards and waiting for. Romans says that all of creation has been groaning since the fall of man, waiting for glory, waiting for the coming of Christ, and now we ourselves groan, waiting for the ultimate glorification of when Jesus comes back. But they are blessing his name. And this brings us to the second question, which is Hosanna. It's not necessarily a question, but it is, it's a request, right? Save us.
1: Save now. That's
0: what that meant. That's what it means. Save now. Save us, depending on your translation that you're reading. So I'll open that up. Like, is that a godly request? Well, yeah, I would think so. Of course. Obviously, right? Like, it's a, it's a holy request to say, Lord, save us. Save now, right? The problem is, though, these people's hearts makes the request ungodly. Because this same crowd that's saying, save us now! The king is coming! We're so excited! In five days, it's gonna be the same crowd yelling, crucify him. We don't have any other king but Caesar. What changed? Same crowd, same people, that they're all jazz. Wow, well, our king is coming! Ah, we don't have any king from, but Caesar. Kill him, crucify him, torture him. So why are they yelling Hosanna? If you remember from uh, Zechariah that Jaslyn wrote, "The king is coming," right, and he speaks peace to all the nation. His kingdom is going to be worldwide. Prisoners are going to be set free, strongholds broken, and weapons fixed, right? And so they're excited. This is good news for, for the Israelites. Like, we're going to be the most powerful kingdom in the world. Our king is going to be the greatest. That's exciting. Yes, it's how happening now. He's the one, right? This is what we've been waiting for. Now, did all that stuff happen in Zechariah? <laughs> Well, not in that way. <laughs> it did happen. Yeah. Exactly. But it didn't happen the way that they were hoping and expecting it to. They were expecting, like, actual weapons, actual warfare, actual power for the Israelites, and everything changing for them. But these are all spiritual things that happened. Us being set free, prisoners being set free from the bondage of sin and from death Right. And, and us, the weapons fixed is Judah was becoming the bow and, and being loaded with Ephraim, sending out into the world. That weapon is the spreading of the gospel. And so there's spiritual truths that are fulfilled in this thing that they're like, no, like we don't want we want the worldwide nation where we have all the power. That's what that's what we want. So if we call on God, save us now, God, God, save me now, right? But if we only say that because we want our own good or our own power, then we're, we're just gonna turn from Him. If, if we then lack power or the world turns against us or makes fun of us, then we're just gonna curse our Savior and be damned. If we're only saying, God, save me because we want something, it's not, it's not a righteous request. It's not a godly request. So who do you who do you serve? You, do you serve God? No matter how He does things, even if it's not how you expected or how things turned out it is not what you want, you still serve God. Or do you serve comfort or power? Man, like what God's telling me to do, like that's gonna be weird. I don't want to do that. Who do you serve? Because that that tug will happen, and you're going to have to make a decision. It's a godly request to call on our Maker to save us, but the heart is really the issue. And these people's hearts were very changeable, and they rejected Jesus as soon as he, He wasn't what they expected. Verse 11. And Jesus went into Jerusalem, into the temple... So when he looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, what was Jesus taking in when he went into the temple and, and he looked around? What was he uh, observing? Anybody know? Uh, I feel like I don't know, but... <laughs> uh, is this around the same time when he like goes in the temple and gets rid of all those people or just making money and taking advantage of people? That's what so, happens next. Yeah. So what he's observing is the church, right? The temple, which is supposed to be a place of worship, the church is stealing from people coming to worship. They would have these... Sacrifices, and they would they would look at people's sacrifice. Oh, this is the best sheep I have. This is the best crop I have. This is the best whatever it is. It's the best I have. They'd look at it. Nope, not good enough. Here's the thing: we'll buy it at a discounted rate, and then you can buy our expensive, like approved by the priest, sacrifice, and and then you'll be good. And so they were they were stealing, literally just stealing from God's people. They would have money. Roman money, and they said, no, that's not good enough for a gift for God. You have to buy temple money. So you give us that, and we'll give you, this is worth half, you know, but it's, gonna, it's better, it's more holy. And so they were literally stealing from God's people, and Jesus is angry. But it's late, so he, he goes back to Bethany, which is where he's staying with the twelve. Verse twelve, Now the next day, when they came out from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares, uh, that is merchandise, uh, through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. So... The reason we just read that whole passage is because Jesus, his anger and his curse of the fig tree, there's a lot of parallels of that anger and teaching against what's happening in the temple. This brings us to our next question, which is, let no one eat from the fruit of you ever again, the curse of the tree, right? That's the, that's the next thing that we see here. and Yes, it's a command from Jesus, but Jesus lived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and his response to them, it's going to show that he's requesting this from God, and God grants it. He's saying, this tree is cursed, and it was, it was cursed. Um, a bit about fig trees really quick, because it says, oh, it wasn't the time for figs. So you might be thinking, like, why did he curse it if it wasn't the time for figs? Some interesting little things about fig trees: they fruit before they have leaves. So the fact that he saw the green leaves and says, "Oh, there's leaves. There must still be there must be fruit on there." Um, also, they normally fruit like at least three times a year. And what's that? Not the one we have. <laughs> <laughs> in in that region, yeah. they would they would fruit at least three times a year, and some in some regions in that area. They might even have fruit on them ten out of the twelve months of the year, so if they, if you saw leaves on it, it was very likely that there was fruit on it. So why mention that there was? It wasn't the time. It, it wasn't the time for harvesting. So it's like okay, they might not be fully ripe, but they're going to be good for food. So they go to it and finds no fruit. So although it wasn't the the normal time for those those figs to be harvested, there, there, it should have still been bearing fruit. That he was expecting to find fruit on it. The Bible tells us that Jesus came at the right time. This is in Galatians. It's also in Romans. Jesus came at the right time, right? But it was out of season for the Israelites. Like, sometimes we think about Jesus coming back, and it's like, man, it'd be really great if he came back, like, while we are in church, like, worshiping, or at, like, a big, like, worship event or, you know, while we're doing the, the right thing, you know? But 2 Timothy 4 tells us to be ready in season and out of season to give an answer to anybody because we don't know when Jesus is coming back. So we need to be ready. So think of that when you're doing something that you know God doesn't want you to be doing or thinking about something that you don't, you know God doesn't want you to be thinking about. We're supposed to be ready to give an answer or just be ready to answer to Him at any moment. Because we don't know when he's coming. And for the Israelites, he came out of season. They were not ready. God's people were not ready when Jesus came the first time. And they were found to be a fruitless tree. And he was angry. And so he, in righteous anger, he purges the temple and kicks everybody out and says, This is supposed to be a place of worship. And you filled it up with booths to make money for yourself. Verse 20. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look. I love Peter. He's always just stating exactly. He doesn't need to say it, but he's going to, hey, look. The fig tree which you cursed has withered away. By the way, we're already into the third day here. Um, the first day was him that triumphal entry, right? Then he goes home to Bethany, then he comes and he purges the temple. Then at evening, right, it says that when it was evening, he left the city, now we're into the third day. Peter remembering says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. In a, I think it's in Matthew, it says they actually ask, the disciples ask, like, how is it possible that this is this is uh, withered away? So that's going to be our next question, actually. But Jesus' response is, So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them, and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone forgive them that your father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses but if you do not forgive neither will your father in heaven forgive your trespasses that passage we just read it's got 3 of the next questions 4 5 and 6 so number 4 is how did this happen so fast how is it that this tree has withered so quickly and Jesus's response is a godly request was was made from a faithful servant. Have have faith. It, it it happened because I asked it to happen. Number five, we need to unpack a little bit. Many misuse this passage that we just read. They misuse it and they, they teach falsely from it to say that whatever you ask, if you just muster up enough faith, then you'll have it. Uh, that's not what this is saying. It's not saying that if you just can muster up enough believing, then like God's going to just, you're going to be able to bend his will. You're going to be able to make him do whatever you want. That is not what this passage is saying. Admittedly, that is sort of what it sounds like upon first reading. But that interpretation is a misunderstanding of what faith is. So that's what we're going to look at. That's the next question is, what is faith? Okay. So... In Mark chapter 10, you don't have to go there, but it's just literally the chapter before this. The sons of thunder, right? The sons of Zebedee, James and John, These are like a couple of Jesus' closest friends, uh, his disciples. And they come to Jesus and they they make this request. God, when you are glorified, can you make one of us sit at your right hand and one sit at the the left? Because, like... That's good. That'd be awesome. If, like, when you get to heaven and then we get there, like, just you set us up as left hand, right hand. Yeah. Your choice, but like, that's, that's what we want. So when they ask that question, they have full knowledge, knowledge, right? They have full faith of who Jesus is and that he will be glorified. They're not questioning. They're not doubting that that's happening at all. They're just like, Jesus, will you like make that happen? Right. So they're, it's not like, oh, you have enough faith. Right? If, if that was the case, then she's like, well, I have to. You, you have this full faith. You totally know this truth. But Jesus' response is, you don't know what you're asking. Right? It's, it's not mine to give and you don't even know what you're saying. You don't know what you're asking. So what is Jesus saying here in verse 24? Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Again, the question: What is this believing? That that word believing—if you—if you believe that you receive them, then you will have them. In the Greek, it's the same word for faith; it's interchangeable. Whenever you see that in the New Testament, you see uh, it, it either is translated into English as believe or faith. It's the same Greek word, so it's it's, it's interchangeable there. So, so what is faith? You don't have to go there, but I'm going to quickly turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse one. This has often been said a biblical definition of what faith is. I'd agree with that. So we'll read it. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So that word substance can also be translated into realization, and that word evidence can also be translated into confidence. So faith is the substance or the realization, right? Right? of things hoped for and the evidence or the confidence of things not seen when you look it up in the greek that word faith or believe here it actually means to be persuaded to truth so what i'm getting at is is what you ask for is it true right and that's what jesus is saying if you if you believe if you're persuaded that it is the truth right is your request true Now, only God can decide that, right? 1 John 5, John, right? The same guy, one of the sons of thunder, like, hey, can I sit at your right hand? He writes a book, and in 1 John 5, it says, uh, specifically, it says, If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and you'll have it. So if this is in, in in line with many other scriptures. First John four talks more about it. James, Romans, a bunch of other scriptures. That's that's really what Jesus is saying, and that's the biblical truth that if you ask what is God's will, then it will happen. So if you're persuaded that the truth is that the mountain will be cast into the sea, then you can trust that that's going to happen, right? You can trust that that's going to be done because you are persuaded that that's what God is doing. That's faith. Okay. So if you know that it's a godly request, then you can trust that God will grant it. This is how we have faith in Jesus, right? We, we, we trust and believe that he will save us. That's what faith is. Man, like that Jesus is the truth. I believe that. I, I want to lean into that and I trust him to save me. And so when we ask that, we request that of him, then he gives us grace and he gives us salvation instead of the damnation that we deserve. With that being said, we're going to look at another request next week from Jesus where maybe he's not sure, or we have those times, right? We're not sure if it's God's will. And we need to to not demand anything of God, God, I believe this so much. You you have to do it. That's not how you talk to God. If you're not sure, then you ask as a child asks permission from from a father, right? I, there's one pastor that I really like that when he talks about this, you know, he says that anytime his kid says, "Hey, Dad, can we pray?" No matter what he's doing, the answer is always yes. That is in line with my will. Yes, I'm going to stop what I'm doing. That is a godly request. Let's pray. That same son of his one time came and said, hey, can I light fireworks off in the living room? Like, that would be sweet. Uh, no, not in line with my will. Like, you cannot do that. That's, that's against the rules here. <laughs> you know, like, that's just not going to happen. And so we can think about that as God is our father and we as children, we can consider that. Like, And sometimes we come to him and we're like, God, I don't know what your will is, but this is my request. And whatever you decide is fine with me, you know, but you're yielding to him and you're realizing he's your father, you're the child, and you're making a request. But if he gives you something, right, you're going to go here, you're going to do this, then okay. Or if he tells you to pray for something specifically, God told me to do this, so I, I trust that it will happen. So, oh. Oh. yeah, go ahead. Can I comment? The, yeah, please. The passage about, like, casting a mountain into the sea prayer... I like, when I read that, I think about, uh, like, when there's something really big, more like a spiritual mountain, I guess. Sure. Like, maybe someone who, like, my family member who's not a believer or something, like, something big. I'm like, oh, this is so terrible. Like, I wish this would go away or this would get better. Uh, that verse, like, encourages me in that way. I'm like, yes, like, this mountain, this spiritual mountain, like, if I pray about it, like, it could be passed away. Yeah, that is definitely true. You know, and that's <laughs> that's something that we need to, to trust and believe that God is bigger than whatever issue is happening in our life, right? And we need to, to trust in Him in that way, right? So we need to, say, have full faith and full trust that, yeah, God's bigger than that issue, and I know that He can. And again, like, God, your will be done, but... This is my request, right? So if you're not if you're not positive, right? What that truth is, what if the thing is going to happen for sure? Then we we ask uh, as a child ask permission from a father. It's interesting, also that Jesus here he talks about you know if you pray with faith and you're going to receive, then he goes right into and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that the Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Amen. Man. Yeah. That's Matthew 18? No, that's uh, Mark 11, 25 and 26. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's like, it's so interesting to me that Jesus puts these two things right next to each other, right? Because again, if you think about 1 John passage, where he's talking about if you ask what's in line with God's will, he also says like if you are doing what God wants you to do, if you're being obedient to Him, then He's going to grant you your request. If if you're in God's will and you're asking what He wants, then it's a different type of request, right? Again, First John, if you remember the verse I quoted, that First uh, John five, he says if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So the question then is, so if it's not according to the will his will like does he hear it obviously if we're his child he hears our request he considers it he says oh you know again maybe the request of a father right let's put it in human terms again if a child comes to him, hey dad can like can we go to disneyland this weekend it's like ah i don't know i don't know like maybe we'll see we'll see what happens let's see if we can work that out right and sometimes god does give you a maybe uh, let's see how things turn out and pan out And we'll see how that that happens. But he does hear it if if you're a child. The Bible, though, is also very clear that God doesn't listen to the prayers of the wicked. And if you reject Jesus, then you're in that camp. Right? Jesus said that you're either for me or you're against me. Like That's the line. For me or against me. In John 3, he's talking to a man and he says you either believe me or you're condemned already. You made your choice. Like, that's where Jesus draws the line. Do you believe in me or not? Verse 27. Mark eleven twenty-seven. Then they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes. Uh-oh. And the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? It's easy sometimes to read the Bible like, oh, they came to him by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do these things? Now, they're they're pissed. They're coming to him like, who do you think you are? Coming into the temple and flipping tables and shoving everybody out of here. Like, you can't do that. Right? So they're coming to him questioning him. So is that a godly request or a... A non-godly request. Is that a godly question or a not-godly question? Not-godly. Um, not-godly. Not godly. That's a pretty obvious <laughs> one. Not, not, you don't have to talk about that one too much. When a question becomes an accusation, you've crossed the line. Okay? God, why is this happening? Right? That's a different question than, God, why don't you love me? That's not a question, right? I can say, like, Eduardo, like, why are you doing that? That's a different question than, Eduardo, why are you stupid? Like that's not a question. I'm forming it as a question, right? I don't think you're stupid. I'm just I'm picking (laughs) (laughs) on you. That's a you know, it's an accusation. You're forming it as a question, but it's not a question. You're you're accusing. If you're if you're questioning God, well, who are you, God? What do you think you're doing? Why did you do this to me? Whoa, you better you better pump the brakes because that's your creator. That's your Heavenly Father that holds the entire creation and time in His hands. We need to remember that when questioning God. It's okay to have questions. Ask the questions. Look for answers. But remember that you're a child. He's a father. You are a tiny little speck. And He he loves you. He created you. But we need to remember that He is our Creator. Every time God is questioned, especially in the Old Testament, people accuse God of things. He says, who, who do you did you form the mountains from nothing? Like, and he puts people in their place to say, hey, like, you need to realize I am God here. You're, you're not God. You can't judge me. I'm the only righteous judge. Verse 29. But Jesus answered, I love this. Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Right? This is Jesus' cousin who came, who was prophesied hundreds of years before that John would come and that he would tell of the Messiah, who is Jesus. says, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. So this is question eight of the nine that we're looking at tonight. Was John's baptism godly? What do you guys think? Yes. Another obvious one, another easy one. It's a, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. It's in line with Scripture over and over again. These prophecies happen hundreds of years, and then John and Jesus fulfill them perfectly, with astounding accuracy. So Jesus asks this question, and their response in verse 31. It says, And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know, right? They're taking the agnostic sort of stance. Well, I, I don't know for sure, so I'm just going to, well, we don't know. Okay. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is our final question that the, the Pharisees, the, the chief priests, the religious people of the time who who were doing all of these great things except for ignoring what God was actually doing because they liked power they and they feared men, right? But they ask a question, they anticipate Jesus' question if they say that John was a prophet. And That's our final question that we'll consider tonight. Uh, why did you not believe? Right? And, and that's totally what Jesus' response would have been. Oh, if you thought John was a prophet, he prophesied about me. Right? He, he was telling everybody that I was coming and, and I fulfilled that. They answered their own question. They feared man more than God. Uh, well, we, we can't say this thing. And everything they do, they're always thinking about what man is going to think of them. They wanted to seem powerful. They wanted to seem righteous, but they were rejecting what Jesus was doing, which was rejecting what God was doing. They loved their position. They loved their power more than the work of God that was happening right under their nose. And they rejected Jesus. Jesus says multiple times and his followers after him write many times that there is no excuse for not believing the truth. There's no excuse. Especially now that it's been spelled out, laid out right in front of you. Jesus was prophesied about. He then came and fulfilled all of those prophecies and became a sacrifice and took our place. We deserve death. We deserve hell. But Jesus died so that we could have a relationship with God and go to heaven. So now that that is, is put out there, it's very obviously laid out in front of you. What are you going to do with it? Why did you not believe? Or, or do you believe? And what what is the next thing that God is saying? Hey, do this. You have to have faith in him to take that next step of obedience, right? Jesus actually... we're not going to get into it in Mark 12 his response, he goes right into it Right, same conversation he actually does lay it out right there in front of them, he gives them a parable saying that that God sent prophets, they killed all the prophets and now God has sent his son and now they're going to kill his son he prophesies about his own death right here and that God is going to punish them for killing him he ends the parable by saying have you not even read the scripture? He, he's, he says it in uh, verse 10. I'll read it real quick. Have you not even read this scripture? This And these are, you know, very highly educated. They think very highly of themselves. You know, they know the, the Bible backwards and forward. And Jesus says, have you not even read the scripture? And he says, this is, this is speaking of me. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's saying, you're, going, you're rejecting me. I'm, I am that cornerstone. I am the, the rock of offense, as it says elsewhere. I am the truth. I am what, what God is doing right before you. There's no time to waste. It's time to repent and be saved. That's the first three days of this final week of Jesus' life. Um, I encourage you to read 12, 13. You can continue on. We're actually going to pick it up in Mark 14. We're going we're to skip Wednesday and, and Thursday, and we're going to go right into Friday of Holy Week, which is Mark 14, when Jesus continues to fulfill prophecy and continues to go towards the cross and be that Passover lamb for us to, to, to step into the place of taking our punishment upon Himself. Right? So we'll look at that next week in Mark chapter 14. But I would encourage you, again, to consider what God has you to believe. If, if you hadn't haven't made that decision to, to follow Jesus, like, this is a great time to do it. Again, there's no time to waste. Why, why are you putting it off? You know the truth. There's no excuse to not believe it. If you have believed, then God has things for you to do, right? There's, there's that obedience as we talked about before. What do you need to believe him for that next step? What do you need to have faith that he's going to do in your life? Sometimes it's a tough thing to do, but that's my encouragement. So we can close and pray with that. Dear guys, I just want to thank you so much for tonight and for everything that you did uh, and sending Jesus to be our sacri- sacrifice and to fulfill your word, God. I pray that you will help us to uh, make the right decisions. So often we're prone towards all the, the worst decisions, God. And, uh, I pray that uh, you will intercede for us and help us to lean into you, um, to trust you, to believe in you, to put full faith in you and consider the truth. God, I pray that you will bless the rest of this evening and help us have a great rest of our week. I pray that you will be in our minds as we come up to Palm Sunday and the lead up to Easter. God, I pray that you will continue to speak to us through our word as we read the Bible, uh, through your word, rather, as we read the Bible and draw us closer to you. I pray that you bless our fellowship tonight, and in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you. I like this scene. Yeah. So when you said nine questions in three days, I thought you meant three Wednesdays. So I was like, oh, he's going past the third que- oh my gosh. <laughs> nine questions in one night. There's so many more than that. Like if we had time it would be really fun to go through twelve like questions and statements. Like chapter twelve, there's a lot more questions that he that Jesus is asking that the Pharisees are asking, and there's tons more questions. So again, I encourage you guys to continue reading chapter 12 and 13. In chapter 13, Jesus prophesies about the destruction of Jerusalem that happens in 70 AD, yeah. which, by the way, one of the prophecies about Jesus was that he would come to his holy temple. Well, the holy temple's gone. It ended in 70 AD. That that's Messiah, that. The Israelites continue to wait for it because they don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. That prophecy can't be fulfilled because the the temple's gone. So that that gives us a timeline. Well, Jesus was for sure that fulfillment because he came and then prophesied about the temple being destroyed, and then it was in 70 AD. So another little fun nugget.